everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vineyard. My name is Amos. I'll just say my desire for the Thanksgiving potluck is that we all play spoons afterward. Do you guys know that game? Can turn violent, but uh, otherwise good, clean family fun. Anybody can do it. Who knows how to play spoons? Okay. Well, we'll teach you if you don't know how. Um, If you didn't grab a Bible on your way in, I would encourage you to do so. If you have a Bible already, open up to Daniel chapter 7. This is the final week we'll be spending in Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 marks a pretty dramatic shift from where we have been up to this point. The first six chapters are really all about what it looks like to live life in exile. And we've been talking about how in our world today, as we live in a culture, as we live in a world that doesn't hold the basic values or beliefs of faith in Jesus, uh, we need to find ways to love and engage people, but still maintain our identity, uh, to stand rooted in who we truly are, and that's sons of God and followers of Jesus. Uh, In Daniel chapter 7, we enter into the apocalyptic portions of Daniel. And if you've ever gotten into apocalypse or eschatology, those are big words that basically mean a study of the end times, like the end of the world, that's eschatology. Apocalypse often gets grouped into eschatology because of a lot of, a lot of apocalyptic literature is about like the coming day of judgment, but it's actually not only about that. Apocalypse is really about the revealing or the pulling back of a curtain to show reality as it really is or truly is, which is more than the eyes can see. And so if we read Apocalypse, you'll notice that there's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of symbol. It's pretty weird, Um, but don't come at it like an engineer, Don't come at it even like a historian exactly, or you'll start to get lost in the weeds of what does this mean and what is that? And you'll start looking for connections that may not be there. Read Apocalypse like you're looking at a painting. There's rich imagery. And if you look at a painting and start to say, well, this little tree means that I have a friend out there. Bob Ross joke, anybody? Gonna laugh at that? Okay. Like you, you can lose, lose the point if you start to try to put these things uh, and apply these things to people you know or people you see in the news. But we'll, we'll hopefully talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. So uh, we'll, we'll jump into the middle of a vision. One of the things that's also going on in chapter 7 is Daniel 1 through 6 kind of chronologically takes us through the Babylonian Empire into the Persian Empire. Daniel chapter 7 does a rewind. So 7 verse 1 says that Daniel receives this vision during the reign of King Belshazzar, who is a Babylonian king that comes after Nebuchadnezzar. So let's start with verse 9. And if you guys could stand with me, we're just going to stand to 
honor God as we read his word to us. And let me pray as you do that. Lord, come and meet us today. Send your spirit. Let your spirit work in our hearts, uh, engage our minds. Let the truth of your word uh, accomplish what it is meant to uh, in the hearing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. This is page 906, by the way, if you're not there. Let me start over. Sorry about that. I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. This is strange, right? Because now we have a horn talking to us, but we'll get into that. The other three beasts had their authority. Whoops, sorry. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a while longer. And my vision continued that night. I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. This is God's word. You guys can have a seat. You recognize that son of man character? Sound like anybody you know? That's Jesus. This, uh, this is written before Jesus, but it's expecting the day of Jesus' kingdom coming in its fullness. Um, and interestingly, it was really almost exactly a year ago that we started a Revelation series where we looked at the book of Revelation and read uh, from those chapters where it actually names the Son of Man as Jesus, like the Son of God. So I want you to imagine a house. In fact, I want you to imagine this house. Can anybody identify this house? You recognize the McAllister house from Home Alone. This house has two stories. I want you to imagine that you live in this house, but you've never left the first story. You can see from the outside that there's a second level, uh, but you can't figure out how to get up into that second level. And so you live your life on the ground. Occasionally you hear things from upstairs. You think you hear voices. Dad says, I didn't hear anything. Uh, Uncle George says that those are just the pipes creaking. You know, there's a fully logical explanation for those sounds we hear from upstairs. But you're convinced that you have heard footsteps and that you've heard voices. Something's going on on that second level. Now, you have a, a brother, Daniel. He's your youngest brother. He claims he found a way up 
He claims he's seen what's up there. He claims there's a whole other level of reality that you haven't seen. And he's gotten there by prayer and by fasting and by seeking God and his presence. And God showed him the door and he went upstairs and he, and he, he, he sees this like king, but he sees monsters and he sees all these things. So, I mean, I, I guess the question is, do you believe Daniel? <laughs> do you believe that there's another layer of reality beyond what the eyes can see? This is the biblical worldview. This is the worldview of Jesus and for those who follow him. And what Apocalypse does is it attempts to pull back the curtain to show us what's going on beyond what science can measure. And so if we just start back at the first verse of Daniel, so you can flip your Bibles there, but I want to show you a little timeline before we do that. This will take a second to take in, perhaps, but you can see I've put a couple of the major Bible characters up at the top. The... uh, the different empires through the middle, and then some kings you maybe have recognized, like Daniel uh, begins in the Babylonian Empire. He's taken by King Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon, uh, but he overlaps with Persia. And you can see Isaiah actually comes before the Assyrian captivity, but the Judean, like the northern kingdom is taken into captivity uh, by the Assyrians, but uh, the Judean people are not taken into exile to the Babylonian Empire. But Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you actually find uh, Ezekiel uh, talking about Daniel, and you find Daniel uh, reading some of the prophecies of Jeremiah, so these guys are interacting. Something really interesting happens, of course, when the Persian Empire comes and Cyrus takes control. Uh, He defeats the Babylonian Empire and is basically welcomed into the city of Babylon. He, He lets the... Uh, Jewish people go home. And so you have like Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple, but also Queen Esther during the reign of Darius. And so Cyrus Darius, and you've probably heard of Xerxes if you've watched that movie about uh, the 300 Greeks, like that's that's where he kind of fits in this whole picture. Something, uh, of course, world-changing happens when Alexander the Great comes to power. He conquers the world again, and he does it really quickly. Uh, And after he conquers that kind of middle, well, we could call it middle of the world if you're looking at the globe, but uh, the ancient Near East, let's say, he divides his kingdom among his four generals. And so the Greek empire has influence and control over the land of Judah up until in a moment that is described in the book of Daniel, kind of broadly in chapter 7, but in more detail as we go on, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a Greek, like, power, like, person, uh, desecrates the temple. You know what he does? He gives a sacrifice to Zeus with pig blood. So it's not only defiling the space because it's not to the real God of heaven, he's using a non-kosher animal, like he's really sticking it to the Jews. And this is pretty remarkable. Uh, The Maccabees, have you heard of the Maccabees? This is like pre-Jesus. The Maccabees don't actually show up in our Bible, but it's it's good history. And there's books, if you've 
grew up in a different tradition, like there's apocryphal books called the First and Second Maccabees. They drive the Greeks out. So there's a period where the, like, Israel, as we know it, is autonomous and free before, of course, Julius Caesar, or at least the armies of Rome. I don't think Julius Caesar ever comes to Judea, but he's the one in power. And the influence of Rome grows and overtakes Israel about 60. And then, of course, Jesus comes not exactly at the year zero. Did you notice this is B.C., so it's all counting down instead of counting up. It's counting down. Jesus comes at zero during the reign of uh, Caesar Augustus, right? And so this is all, this is kind of the history of Israel through exile pointing toward Jesus. And the prophecies of Daniel touch a lot of these kings and a lot of these moments. So let's pick this back up. Let's read through uh, Daniel 7, starting in verse 1. Earlier, during the first, reign, uh, first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and this is what he saw. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came out of the water, each different from the others. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off, and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being, and it was given a human mind. So from the first story, you see kings invading, the Babylonian kings, King Nebuchadnezzar coming and taking captives, and but, but not just like creating destruction, but building culture and sharing wealth. And, and economic benefits come to, like, people living in, in the empire. Um, but Daniel says, from the second story level, there's a storm and there's chaos. And so depending on who's writing history, things are getting better and better. But from the perspective of some, things are chaos and it's getting worse and worse. We kind of live in a moment where we think, where we believe in human progress, like, uh, humans are just going to make the world better and better and better and better and better. That's like the prevailing idea. But from the second story, we see that, like, that's not necessarily true. And if you read uh, Jeremiah, you find Nebuchadnezzar described as both a lion and as an eagle. So here in this vision, Daniel sees a lion with eagle's wings in verse 4. So jump to verse 5. Then I saw a second beast. And it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, Get up, devour the flesh of many people. If you keep, we won't read through the entirety of verse or chapter seven, but you find the second beast is representative of the Persian Empire. The third of these strange beasts appeared, and it looked like a leopard. It had four bird's wings on its back, and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. What did I say about the conquest of Alexander the Great? He did it really quick, like a leopard. And then what did he do? He divided it between his four generals. How many heads does this beast have? Four heads. Then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast. This is where it gets really 
in his own words, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath his feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. So again, this is getting very, very strange because we have horns growing and pushing out other horns. And uh, in a minute here, the horn is going to talk. So a horn in apocalyptic literature typically represents like power. And so these are, with, like when horns are given a voice, they're, they're powerful people. These are, let's say, possibly, uh, I would say most likely, uh, emperors of Rome. But because Daniel chapter 7 doesn't actually identify who this fourth beast represents, we have to be very careful with jumping to conclusions. One of the reasons that I think uh, that this could represent the Roman Empire is because there are about 10 emperors, like there are 10 major emperors between Julius Caesar and Domitian. And Domitian is the time in which Revelation is thought to have been written. So there's this incredible time of persecution that comes after 10 kings, or maybe in this case, 10 horns of uh, the beast. So as I was looking at the horns, verse 8, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it, and the little horn had eyes like a human and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. Verse 9, and this is what we read before. I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. And so during this entire sequence, right, we're seeing reality from a spiritual view. It looks like the monsters are in power. It looks like these kingdoms of the world will last forever because it's stronger than anything that we have seen before. Until, of course, another kingdom comes, which is more powerful. But as all this is unfolding, as beasts are devouring beasts, as nations are devouring nations, as people are devouring people, there's something that's higher. There's something that's truer. And here we get a vision of the ancient one who sits down to judge. It says his clothing was as white as snow, which means this person is pure and holy, and his hair was of the purest wool. Have you ever met someone with like woolly white hair? I've only met a few people, and these are some of the wisest, gentlest, kindest people that I have ever met. And, and likewise, in apocalyptic literature, the, the idea of white hair has to do with wisdom. He sat on a fiery throne and with wheels of blazing fire which symbolically points to judgment, which symbolically points not just to judgment, but to purification. We're kind of programmed to think that judgment is always a bad thing. And I, I mean, I think like judging other people is a bad thing, but God's judgment is actually a good thing. Like, thankfully, there's justice that's coming. And our king and judge is like perfectly wise and untainted by anything. And we find out that he has a son who do, goes and dies for the sins of all people. 
It says a river, verse 10, was pouring out from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him, and many millions more stood to attend him. And then the court began its session, and the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by the fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a little while longer. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal, and it will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Now let's keep going. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen, and my visions terrified me. What goes on in the rest of chapter 7 is the interpretation of this vision, which I basically took us through. Now, remember, the fourth beast is not identified. And uh, while there are reasons to think that it is pointing to Rome, there are also reasons to think that it is pointing to something more than Rome, like more than the Roman oppression. Like there's something coming at the very end that uh, Rome is like almost a little example or toy model of. Like there's a real spiritual power behind all these things, including Rome. Uh, In Revelation, there's uh, a person identified as the Antichrist, which kind of steers the whole ship. Uh, So so I guess what I'm saying is maybe we shouldn't get into either-or language. Maybe we can say both and. Like, this isn't just Rome, and it isn't just pointing to something at the end. Rome gives us a picture of how evil can build and terrify and like cause real damage. But it's very dangerous to get into hunting for the Antichrist. Do you want to know why? Because pretty much every generation thinks that they've identified the Antichrist. So if you know just a little bit of history, you know that the odds are that you're going to get it wrong. So 500 years ago, you know who they thought the Antichrist was? The Pope. Now, the Pope wasn't necessarily a super nice guy 500 years ago, but the end of the world didn't come. Um, Then, as some of you know, it was Adolf Hitler. He was the Antichrist. And he was a really nasty guy. So, like, was he? he? Maybe he had something in common with the Antichrist, but of course, the end of the world didn't come. And then it was Stalin. If you look at prophets around the time of Joseph Stalin, they were saying, you know who the Antichrist is? It's Stalin, and and like the kingdom of Stalin is Russia. So like we've got this evil empire out there. And like Joseph Stalin was not a nice guy. Maybe he had some things in common with the Antichrist, but the end of the world didn't come. And, And it's been China, and it's been, I mean, I just think about my own lifetime. Like it was Bill Clinton and then it was George Bush, and then it was, uh, who was between there? Obama, and 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 then Trump, and I'm I'm just stop, I'm going to stop there. Like everybody, if you Google, is President so-and-so the Antichrist, you're going to find people who believe it. 
So just be very careful about interpreting apocalypse where there's not an interpretation given. I'm trying to give you tools to make your way through the weeds of really the rest of the book of Daniel. Because I don't, I, I like, I couldn't just ignore the fact that like more than half of the book is full of apocalyptic prophecy, but it gets very tedious and it's a dark, dark hole that you can fall into. And some people have. Some of you maybe have friends or family members who have fallen into the dark, deep well of apocalyptic prophecy. So let's, let's rein it back and let's look at the, like the picture that's being painted here. So we've talked about the idea that there's a spiritual reality that's influencing and dynamic related to the earthly realities that we can see. One of the things that I appreciate so much about Daniel is that he, he has a grip on reality. He has a grip on the fact that what's going on in front of him, like that he can see with his eyes, is important and matters. There's a spiritual realm that's impacting these things. He can see like the hope of the future. The ancient of days, the son of man is coming. And the sadness and the pain and the suffering of the present. He holds both. And at the end, it says in verse 9, I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen. So he neither like goes into a place of denial of like, yay, it's all going to be great. Don't worry about the this, this stuff. Like, it's all temporary. Nor does he find himself in a uh, destructive, depressed cycle of, man, the world is coming to an end. Woe is me. Woe is you. It's all going to burn. You know what I mean? And, and I, I actually, I know that some of you have been there because when things are bad, it seems like things have always been bad and things are always going to be bad. Like I'm just saying about like a psychological state that we can find ourselves in, but that's not the whole truth. And once you get out of it, you can reflect back and say, oh, I, was, I did not have a grip on reality. I was hanging on only to the negative, only onto the death, destruction, the, the evil things that I see happening in the world, or even perhaps the evil that I find unfolding in my own life and my own relationships. But on the other hand, like Daniel doesn't ignore, like he doesn't dwell on only the good or on only the bad. He like, he finds himself in a place of like, realistic hope. Like there will be bad things that happen, but God is on the throne and he's deeply troubled. But it's really, it's hilarious. If you just flip the page to chapter eight, verse 27. So right, this is the very end of chapter eight. He has another vision. It's, it's very similar. It's like strange and troubling. It, it encompasses like a lot of death and destruction and doom. He says, then I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for several days. Like he's, he's really upset, uh, perhaps because the vision was so intense, but perhaps because when, when he sees the destruction of an empire coming, he sees the people that he loves and cares about, the people that he serves. Perhaps at this point, I think it's King Dar Darius in chapter 8. Uh... No, it's still Belshazzar. Well, anyway, it says, though, that afterward I got up 
and performed my duties for the king. But I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. It's like he's this prophet who sees so clearly in the spiritual realm and he's got his feet on the ground. He feels the pain. He feels sick about the coming destruction and he gets up and he serves the king. He goes to work the next day. He keeps on going. He keeps on loving his, you know, like in in our terms, like you wake up and you get breakfast for your kids. (laughs) You go to work. You love your boss. You love your coworkers. You, you, You keep on going. And I think it is, I mean, it's in part the hope that we have and in part God's faithfulness to us and in part our faithfulness to him that, that is really empowered by his spirit that lets us get up and go back to work, come back to church, keep on caring for those kids, keep on praying for our nation. Which reminds me, one of the things that we learn from this vision is that all worldly power is temporary. All worldly power is temporary, but Daniel, knowing that, continues to serve the people who are in power, the people who are wielding worldly power. He continues to show love even when those same people, he continues to serve even when those same people try to end his life like in the lion's den. Okay, one last thing. This passage reminds us that spiritual evil is real and that living in exile really can be hard. Like there's real suffering in living for God in a world that can punish that. There's real suffering living in families that have cycles of pain and brokenness and hurt that go on from generation to generation. There's real evil that gets its fingers in those dynamics and in these and in the politics. But I want to end this series with a quote from Gandalf (laughs) (laughs) and remind you that there is a king coming whose reign and kingdom will not end. But here's, here's Gandalf. Of course, this is in the minds of Moria, and Frodo is complaining that the ring has come to him, and he's upset that like they're, they're lost in the dark. And he says, so I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. He goes on to say, there is more power in this, at work in this world besides the will of evil. And he gives some examples of like, all this was meant to happen. This is not a surprise. In other words, the sorts of things that are going on in your life right now, God is not surprised. The sorts of things that are going on in the world right now, God is not surprised. 
And Gandalf concludes his little speech by saying, and that is an encouraging thought. This is our encouragement. Daniel chapter 7. I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Please stand. Worship team's coming forward. And I would say, let's, let us posture our hearts. Maybe it's helpful to posture our bodies toward the Son of Man, the King of this kingdom that has no end. So come Holy Spirit. I feel like there are maybe two responses after reading a passage about judgment and the future. One is to repent, to simply reorient our life and our thoughts toward the way of Jesus, toward the character of God. And so to even invite the Holy Spirit to say or to show us where we've gone off track. But to not let shame or guilt rule the day, but to simply say, God, I am sorry. I am committed to you. And to know that he is quick to forgive and wants to restore and desires to heal. And the second response is to ask him for help and for strength. And I can almost guarantee that every single person in this room has an area of their life right now where they need God's help and his strength. And so I invite you to pray that. Say, God, help me. So God, help us as we parent. Help us in our marriages. Help us in our friendships, help us at school, help us at work. Help us in conflict. Help us in fear. Meet us. And strengthen us. Amen. 
Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.